pretty excitedly back. Alyssa and I have been at Camp Hope for the last half a month. <laughs> Uh, so it's been, it's been a challenge, it's been a blessing, but it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful time to be able to sleep uh, in our own bed. <laughs> uh, the bed that we had was like tilted slightly, so our feet were always lower than our, than our heads. It was just, it, was a, it, was, it was, took some getting used to. I think I'm, I'm getting used to being able to sleep on a flat bed now. Uh, and we're leaving actually again, we're leaving tonight for camp. I uh, will be, be blessed to be able to be the youth pastors uh, for, for camp there, for youth summer camp. So uh, we're excited about that. How many of you guys were able to come down for, for camp meeting uh, this year? I know there's, there's quite a few of us that were able to come down and, and some that weren't. Um, we had an amazing experience to be able to worship together, people from all over the province. If you didn't get a chance this year to come down, we really want to encourage you to come down next year, even if it's just for the Saturdays, even if it's just for church. Uh, we really want to encourage you to come down and join us. Uh, today we are picking up where we left off a, a couple of weeks ago. We are going through our series, for those of you who are just visiting us today who um, aren't aware, but we're going through this series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And, and throughout this story, what we're doing is we're reading basically all some of the major stories of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We are, we are discovering um, some of the, the crazy stories that we find in the Bible, some of the stories that are familiar to us in ways that might not be familiar to us. And, and we're also exploring what I call the unexpected narrative of Jesus. We're exploring how the story of God, how the story of Jesus interweaves in some of the Old Testament stories right now as we're in the Old Testament, interweaves throughout the culture and the society, and how God often acts in ways that are unexpected, ways that are countercultural, ways that are countersocial, ways that go against the grain of the norm to bring us a revelation of his love and of his truth. And so today we are going to be continuing on with this series with the book of 2 Samuel. We're reading 2 Samuel chapter 9 today. And this is the story of the cripple and the king. This is David and Mephibosheth. And so if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to join us in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Otherwise, we'll have it available for you on the screen there. But we want to give you just a quick recap of what's been going on in the books of Samuel, uh, just so that you know. We know that the story started off uh, with... Um, Israel rejecting God as their king. God had been their king for a long time. They, they governed under this thing called a theocracy, which is the idea of God being the ruler and king of a nation. And so they rejected this idea because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And so they, they, they rebelled against God and they asked for a king. And so God finally conceded and gave them a king. And then Samuel anointed uh, Saul, son of Kish, uh, to be the king of Israel. And so Saul, uh, as we discover through the story, Saul has a very poor relationship with God. He does a lot of things that he isn't supposed to do. He does a lot of things that go against what God had wanted for his people. He has no personal relationship with God. The only times that he ever actually connects with God or communes with God is when he wants something out of God. He uses God as a tool, as a weapon to win his victories, but Saul has no personal worship connection with God. And so as a result, God tells Saul, listen, uh, because of the path that you're going down, I'm rejecting you as king. And so these, these decades actually pass by, because we read the story, and it almost seems like from one day to the next, God rejects him and then sets up David. It doesn't happen like that. It happens over a span of like 20 or 40 years that God is slowly rejecting Saul, and God is giving Saul the opportunity again and again and again to, to, to love God and to turn back to God. But Saul continually rejects 
rejects God. And, and so then we have this, this uh, new thing that comes up where David becomes anointed to be the next king of Israel. And Saul feels this jealousy and hatred for David because God is, is blessing David. David is having victory and success over, over the Philistines, over their enemies. And so all the people are loving David and Saul hates him and, and feels jealousy. And so he tries to kill Saul a few different times. And so this forces David to be on the run. David is now on the run from Saul. He's running for his life and he kind of gathers this band of a merry miscreants, I call them, uh, these, these group of, of a variety of people from all walks of life begin to follow David. They find in David this leader, this, this, uh, this outcast. They find something that they enjoy or that they like about David, and so they begin to follow him. And, and eventually, uh, unfortunately, in one of the battles, Saul and Jonathan are killed. They're killed when they're fighting the Philistines, and so this leaves David to finally take the throne of Israel. And so David does. David successfully becomes king. And despite some of the tensions that occur, because there are still some loyalties to Saul, David manages to unite Israel. He manages to bring together the two nations, uh, which have been divided at one point, and, and, and manages to rule the, as king for all 12 tribes of Israel. So he secures his kingdom and he begins to fight his enemies and he begins to have victory over them, securing and solidify his kingdom even further. And so this is where we begin our story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is having rest from his enemies because he's having lots of uh, victory that God is giving him. So we're finding our story, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And it says this, David asked, because the previous chapter ends with David having victory over his enemies. And so right now he's in this time of peace, he's in this time of rest, he's in this time of reflection. And so David asks this in verse 1, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 2 says, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? The servant replied, and the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. He is crippled. Where is he? The king asked, and Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down before him to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, bow down before David. And David said this, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should treat him, that you should notice him, or that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and to his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba was a wealthy man. He had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Beloved, 
Mephibosheth had a young son named, named Micah, and all of the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. But he was lame, crippled in both feet. You see, despite the hatred that Saul had for David, despite the wickedness that Saul had done to him, David and Jonathan were still close friends. If you don't know, Jonathan is, is Saul's oldest and firstborn son. And Jonathan and David had formed this relationship, this bond. They, they loved each other deeply. They loved each other like brothers, but even more so than brothers. Because they had this relationship that had been forged in the fires of battle. They had been in wars together. They had faced against the odds together. They had faced numerous, the onslaught of the Philistines. They had faced them and they had formed this bond having fought side by side together, facing insurmountable odds, facing crazy, crazy experiences. And it was this bond that, that two people could, could only have, that could only be created during war. Their bond surpassed all social obligations, it surpassed family bonds, it surpassed political ambitions. And I say this because Jonathan knew full well that God had chosen David. Jonathan knew that his father had been rejected as the king of Israel. Jonathan knew that David would be next in line, not him. And so this meant that Jonathan would never be king. Jonathan would never sit on the throne. Jonathan would never rule over Israel. Jonathan's friendship and love for David meant giving up the throne. And it was Jonathan who found out that Saul wanted to kill David, and he was the one who helped David escape. And just before David left, they made this pact, they made this covenant together. And in the covenant, David promised to show kindness to Jonathan's family. It'll be up here, it'll be 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20, the next slide. It says this, May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father, this is Jonathan saying, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And, and like I said, chapter 8 of 2 Samuel ends with the mention that David has this victory wherever he goes. No matter what enemy he faces, David is victorious. David is having this peace. He's having security. God is fulfilling the promise that he has made to David. And it is so at the end of these encounters that we find 2 Samuel 9, David asking the question, is there a descendant of Saul that I can show kindness to and keep my promise? And so he hears from the master, from the servant Ziba, he hears of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, and he summons the boy. He brings him before him, and when he appears before David, he throws himself down, he falls down prostrate, prostrate on the ground, and he's afraid. And he's afraid, understandably so. Because technically, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but technically, David is a traitor to the crown. Because in normal monastic tradition, David is a traitor who steals the throne of Saul. Even though, even though he had been anointed by God, even though God had chosen him, in normal tradition, this is kind of the reason why, why God didn't really want this kingship, because he didn't want this continued lineage to, to, to happen. He didn't want them to run like all the other kings. But according to the traditions of all the other nations, David is technically a traitor. He is someone who has usurped the throne. He is someone who has gone against the crown and, and, and has kind of toppled Saul. And so when Saul dies, 
the lion, the throne, should go to Jonathan. Right? But Jonathan also dies with Saul. So the lion, the throne, would go to the next of kin, whoever is the closest related. And so that would have been Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth should have been king of Israel. And now that Jonathan and Saul are dead, it wasn't this free-for-all that anyone could come and take the throne. It would be the next in line. The throne is succeeded by legitimate heirs, and it should have been Jonathan's son to inherit the throne. But David has it. And so if you've read any history book of any, any story about kings and thrones and queens, you know that any king, any person who has stolen the throne, technically stolen the throne, would always seek out any living heirs, any legitimate challenge, and would kill them. Because they didn't want these, these sons of kings or, or, or daughters of kings or whatever, they didn't want heirs of the family building up an army, building up supporters to come and try to take the throne back. So David, what David technically should have done if he was playing the game of thrones, he would have killed Mephibosheth. That's what, that's what would have been normal for David to do, but he, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't summon Mephibosheth to kill him. He doesn't wipe out Saul's entire family line. Instead, he blesses Saul's descendants. And this is our very first lesson for today. Our first lesson is this. You are blessed to bless. You guys listening? You are blessed to bless. This isn't the first time I've shared this lesson in our sermons, but it's just such a crucial idea. You see, David has victory. David is securing peace from the enemy nations around him. David is receiving God's blessing. And the question he asks is, how can I keep my covenant and bless Jonathan's family? In other words, he says, how can I take what God has given to me and give to others? That's the question that David asks. And this often isn't our first thought, right? Is that, is that your first thought when you receive something tremendous? When you receive your paycheck, you're like, how can I give my money away? <laughs> right? You don't think that. We don't think that. Uh, and, and I don't mean to say that you're not a good person if it isn't your first thought. I think we all naturally tend to want to pay our bills first and, and then do whatever else it is, whatever dreams and plans that we have, ambitions we have. But... And I want to say this, it's okay to enjoy the blessings that God has for you. After all, he did bless you. But I I think that even though it's not our first thought, even though it might not be our first thought, I do believe that we should include the idea of giving back into our patterns of thinking. Do you guys agree? Because God blesses us so that we can bless those around us. We are blessed to bless. And the story is of the Bible, all of the stories are basically founded on one promise that God made to this man named Abraham thousands of years ago. When God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, he says, I, have, I promise to bless you. And in this covenant that he makes with Abraham, God says this, he says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. See, we need to understand that fundamental to the promise of God blessing us is the idea that we are to use God's blessings to bless the people around us. Do you guys hear that? Fundamental to the promise and covenant that God makes with us to bless us is the idea that we need to use whatever God gives us to bless the people around us. You see, if you're not using your finances 
to bless the people around you, your family, your community, whoever it is, whoever God has called you to bless. It's going to be a personal thing for you. If you are not doing that, then you are not living up to the covenant that God has called you to. If you are not using your talents and your abilities to bless the people around you, whatever God has given you, then you are not living up to the covenant that God has called you to. If you are not serving in your community, if you are not the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around you, then you are not living up to the covenant that God has called you to. And this idea can make us uncomfortable sometimes. Make us feel a little guilty, right? But if it does make us feel guilty, then maybe we should ask ourselves if we are really putting to use what God has given us. If that idea makes us uncomfortable, that we are not living up to the covenant that God has called us to, then maybe the question we should ask is, am I blessing the people around me with what God has blessed me with? See, God hasn't blessed you just so that you can sit on a beach somewhere having cold, fruity drinks delivered to you on demand. Because that's nice. Right? You guys ever had that experience? You guys have been on vacation and enjoyed that? Yeah, that's nice. God hasn't blessed you necessarily for that. And I'm not saying that, that, that you're not supposed to chase your dreams. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have ambitions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a vacation. That's not what I'm saying. It's important to take a break every once in a while. I mean, read the commandments. One of the commandments is the idea of rest, right? God included that because he knew how important it was for us to enjoy ourselves, for us to take time out, for us to take a rest from the things that we do. Uh, I'm not, we're not opposed, and I don't think God is opposed to that idea ever, but... We need to understand that it is not okay to receive God's blessings and do nothing with it. It is not okay to receive God's blessings and do nothing with it. I mean, there's a parable that Jesus says about the blessings, the guy who hides it away and does nothing with it, right? It is not okay to receive God's blessings and do nothing with it. Blessing the people around us is part of the duties that God has performed or that God has instilled in us. It is how we bring God's kingdom here. It is how the people of the world see Jesus. When we bless the people around us, it is how God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. If you've ever wondered why Jesus prayed that in the Beatitudes or when he was showing his disciples how to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is saying, may your people bless the people around them, that things might be good. You are blessed to bless. You know, a friend and I, a couple of months ago, actually, this thing was last summer, uh, we were talking about our lives and we were talking about how we grew up and we noticed something similar about our family, similar about our, uh, about our upbringing. Uh, we were both grown up or we both grew up in, in low-income Hispanic households. We, we, we were both, he's from El Salvador, uh, my family's from Mexico and Panama, and so we both grew up in different areas. Uh, I, I grew up in Vancouver, he grew up in, in Winnipeg, but we both grew up in low-income households. And we realized as we talked that no matter how poor we were, no matter how little we had, there was always room at the table for one more person. No matter how little we had, there was always room. No matter how little food we had, there was always enough room to feed family and friends and guests and strangers, you name it. Anyone that came to your door, the little kid you were playing with, that has all the money in the world, that has his own food at the table, we didn't care. You invite him in and you feed him, right? That's just the way we grew up. And, and, and one year, I remember my family crammed 11 people, 11 people into this tiny little basement suite, okay? 11 people for an entire summer, just because they, they had just moved here and they were looking for a place 
to live. I mean, we weren't rich by any means. We were pretty poor. We, we grew up going to, to food banks and, and, and collecting food stamps and whatever and all that other stuff. But we still had it instilled in us in this idea that no matter how little we had, there was always room at the table for one more. That's just kind of part of the Hispanic culture. And then so for me then, uh, for me, as I was grown up in this, as I, was, as I was brought up in this, for me, there is no greater pleasure than having people stay at our house. Like when they like, hey, like, can I have a place to crash? It's like, it brings me just tremendous amount of joy, right? For me, there is no greater feeling than cooking a good meal and having people enjoy it. I love that. And that's one of the reasons growing up like this is one of the reasons why I enjoy and why I value more than anything. I value good hospitality. I value people opening up their, their, their doors to us, or opening up their homes to you. I value that. It doesn't matter how lavish you live. It doesn't matter how meager you live. The thing that's most valuable to me is people giving whatever they have. And so David here is blessed. He's a king. He has a lot of stuff. He's, this, he's the king of a powerful, developing nation. Israel is becoming a superpower, and David is its leader, and he summons Mephibosheth, who has nothing, and he says this in verse 7. He says, do not be afraid for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He says, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. You see, Mephibosheth is hiding out in this place called Lodabar. And, and this is a city that is on the other side of the Jordan River. He's as far as he possibly, be, uh, possibly can be from David. He's on the outskirts of Israel in this place that is barren. That's literally what Lodabar means. It means without pastures. That's what the city means. That's what the name of the city means. It means without pastures. He's in an area where there is no fruit. He's in an area where he can't have cattle. He's in an area where he can't have a means to support himself. And even Mephibosheth's name means scattered in shame. So you have this person who is hiding in shame in the desert, and he is brought before David, and David uses what, uses what he is blessed with to bless this boy. And he returns the land that was once Saul's to Mephibosheth. He returns to him good, prime, king's land. See, David addresses his immediate needs to the one living in a barren wasteland. He gives king's land. To the one scattered in shame, he welcomes back in honor. And David also promises one more thing. He promises him a seat at the table forever. This is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this. There's always room at the table. There's always room at the table. This isn't just about hospitality because we could talk about our responsibility to welcome the neglected, to care for the oppressed, uh, to sit and dine with the outcast. We could spend a whole sermon talking about that. There are lots of different parables and stories in the four gospels to drive those point homes. But our fir first lesson, uh, our first lesson was about us. We are best blessed to bless. That's about us being in a position to give and give lavishly. But our second lesson, there is always room at the table, is about us being in a position of need. Us being in a position of need. Because take a moment to imagine what it might have been like to be Mephibosheth. You were hiding out. You're afraid for your life. And suddenly messengers from the king come and knock at your door and summon you to the palace. You know how things work in the world around you. You know how kings function. You know what they would have done to you knowing that you are the next in line for the throne. What races through your mind being summoned to the palace? Surely you've been summoned for judgment. 
Surely this is a death sentence, he probably believes. And you arrive before the king, but instead of punishment, he blesses you. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to struggle. The worries of yesterday are no longer a concern. The area of your life that was barren will now be fruitful. Where you were once shameful, you will now be held in honor. What might that feel like? See, by any normal standard, you should be dead, but instead you are welcomed at the table. And I think that a lot of us are stuck like Mephibosheth. We're stuck in our shame. We're stuck in our hiding. We are far off. We are trapped in a barren wasteland. We are scattered in shame, and the king comes calling. And we might ignore the call. We might keep hiding. We might lash out in anger and fight back. We might answer the call and face the king. But where we might expect punishment and judgment, we instead find blessing and freedom. And you see, that's what Jesus does. Because our sin it scatters us in shame. Our sin creates a barren land for our lives, and many of us stay hiding, stay in that barrenness, because we have this fear that the king, that God only wants to condemn us. When we screw up, we feel like God just wants to bring the hammer down, but that's not the king that we serve. If instead of hiding in shame, if instead of hiding in our barren wasteland, we came before the king and we answered the call, we would find that God longs to show us kindness. He wants to bring life to the dead part of our lives. He wants to bring healing to the broken parts of our lives. He wants us to sit and eat with him forever. See, there is always room at the table. God cleans us up. He brings us out of our mess and he sits us down with him to eat, to enjoy community, to enjoy communion with him. We go from being outcasts to being guests at the king's table. Yeah. You guys are not excited about that. You guys love being outcasts. You guys love when your life sucks, right? I think everybody here just loves being depressed, right? No one loves enjoying the fact that God has saved you. Nobody likes that. Right? Let's just, just leave me in my sin. Leave me. I'm stuck. I don't want to be fixed. I don't want anything. Just leave me. Right? Is that how you guys feel? No. I don't feel like that. Man, I'm rejoicing the fact that I'm stuck in shame and I'm brought out of that in honor. I'm rejoicing at the fact that I'm once in a barren wasteland, but the sacrifice of Jesus has brought fruit to my life. He has given me king's land. There was room at the table. You were an outcast. Now you are a guest sitting as one of the king's sons. Guys, that's where you say amen. I mean, we need a, like a teleprompter somewhere up here to let you know this is where you rejoice. This is where you are happy, right? I mean, you guys were once outcasts and now you are guests sitting as sons of the king's table. Amen, yes. That's not for me. I don't need that but it's an acknowledgement of the fact that God has done something wonderful in your life. See, what happens though, sometimes, what happens though, is that we become so accustomed, and maybe this is our issue, we become so accustomed to being guests at God's table that we forget where God has brought us from, right? We're so accustomed to being called sons of the king that we forget where it is that God brought us from. We forget where we were just yesterday. And sometimes as Christians and as churches and as organizations, we forget that we are God's guests 
and we start acting like God's bouncers, right? We place our own expectations and standards on people, and when they don't meet them, we attempt to exclude them from God's table. But there is always, 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 always room at the table. And take a look at this question that David asks in verse 3. He says this. He says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? You see, David restored Saul's land to Mephibosheth. And while it was a kindness because of where Mephibosheth was, he was in this barren wasteland. Now he's given the king's land. It was a kindness. Actually, what David did was just do legally the right thing to do. See, land was meant to stay in the family. God had given them specific rules about how land is supposed to be passed on. It isn't supposed to be conquered. It isn't supposed to be stolen. Even if it's sold off after a certain period of time, it was supposed to be given back freely to the person who had sold it to you in the first place. So the, so the land that Saul owned that was now taken actually belonged to Mephibosheth. He had rights to claim that land. So what David did in giving him the land was just do what he should have done in the first place. But where David shows God's kindness, the step extra is in creating a permanent place for Mephibosheth at his table. This is our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. Show God's kindness. Show God's kindness. Because to give back the land and assure Mephibosheth of his life was the bare minimum that David had to do. But he went the extra mile, and he showed God's kindness. And this is what God calls us to do. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We are called to a higher standard than just the bare minimum. You guys listening? We are called to a higher standard than just the bare minimum. Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, if they ask for the shirt off your back, give them your coat. It says, if they ask you to walk a mile with them, walk with them too. It is not enough to just show kindness. It is not enough to just be good by the world's standards. We are called to a much higher standard. We must show God's kindness. We must reflect the character and attitude of Jesus. Of Jesus. And, and none of this exclusive and selective business, none of this clicky and inner circle nonsense, we need to be as open and welcoming, and merciful, and loving as Jesus has been with us. Did you guys hear that? Because don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what God has brought you out of. We need to be as open, welcoming, merciful, and loving with the people around us as Jesus has been with us. We are welcome guests to God's table. We are the family that he invited in. This means it's not up to us to determine who doesn't and doesn't get to come. We don't get to make up our own checklists and requirements for God's guests. Show God's kindness. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to wrap up. But as, as people who have received the generous mercy and kindness of Jesus, we should celebrate when someone accepts the gift of grace. We show God's kindness. And while we might all agree with this in principle, I think we need to understand the terms and conditions because we often don't read those, right? We just click, I read, I agree, whatever, we move on. But God's kindness is not the world's kindness. Yes, following? God's kindness is not the world's kindness. God's kindness is, is the kindness that loves our enemies 
no exceptions. It's the kindness that embraces sinners not from a safe distance. It is the kindness that fights hatred and oppression, not just when it's easy to do so. It's the kindness that freely and unconditionally forgives and harbors no resentment. See, this is the kindness that sets a place at the table for those who have hurt us, who think differently than us, those who we might not get along with. This is the kindness of Jesus. Because God welcomes us home. He blesses us. And understand that we are blessed to bless. We need to include in our patterns of thinking the idea that we are blessed to bless others. No matter how little we have or how hard we have worked for these things, as followers of Jesus, we need to give back. And this is what God has called us to, this covenant of blessings, to bless those around us, to spread God's love through self-sacrifice and kindness, through love, justice, and mercy. And if we are not blessing others, we are not living up to what God has called us to. You see, we receive so that we might give. You are blessed to bless. And we give not out of obligation. We give because we know that he first gave. He invited us into his family with Jesus. There is always, always room at the table. See, God, God has gathered us from our barren lands. God has redeemed us from our shame. He restores us to honor, and he has set a permanent place for us at his table that we might dine and eat with him forever as his own sons and daughters. And the same way, the same way that there is room for sinners like us, God makes room for everyone else always. We are guests at his table not bouncers. And it's not enough to just be kind. We need to show God's kindness. Don't ever settle for the baseline. Don't ever settle for just the standard. Go the extra mile. God calls us into something far greater than ourselves. God calls us to greater love, to greater mercy, to greater kindness. You know what God's kindness looks like? God's kindness is Jesus laying down his life on the cross to save a bunch of broken and messed up sinners. God's kindness is the kindness that forgave while he was being whipped and beating. It's the, it's the kindness that loved the people who crucified him. It's the kindness that even though our sin put Jesus through unimaginable suffering, through death itself, it's the kindness that leaves him still waiting to welcome us home with open arms. That's God's kindness. And that's the kindness that we are called to show in the world. God's kindness brings heaven to earth through us. So we show God's kindness.